All right, well, today we are continuing in our epic Great God, Great Stories series. Uh, we're going to wrap up the series at the end of the month. Uh, I hope you found the series to be beneficial. I've certainly enjoyed spending some time uh, in the Old Testament, receiving the encouragement that comes from being reminded of God's work in the lives of his people uh, throughout all of history. You know, we serve a great God, and because he is a great God, history is full of great stories of God's power and care for his people. Uh, even though he's not in here now, he's uh, with the high schoolers. I want to thank Ben for preaching in my absence last week. He did an excellent job, uh, as he always does. And I want to thank Kevin and the worship team for uh, serving so ably as Michelle's taken a few weeks off. Uh, I don't know if you realize the amount of effort uh, that goes into being a part of the worship team, but it truly is one of the, uh, the higher bar commitments that people make in terms of serving in ministry at the church. And so I hope that you uh, are mindful uh, and thankful of the effort that the uh, worship ministry puts into leading us uh, in worship each, uh, each Sunday. So we're thankful for them. You can give them a hand. Today, the story that we're looking at is found in the book of 1 Samuel. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's in the 18th through the 20th chapters of the book. Uh, we're only going to read a few places in it, but, uh, but if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, it's the story of David and Jonathan uh, and their friendship. And we're going to be looking most closely today at Jonathan, who is, in my opinion, one of the Bible's greatest unsung heroes. Uh, at the time of this story, Saul is the king of Israel. Uh, if you are familiar with the history of Israel's kings, you know that Saul is Israel's first king. Uh, the nation of Israel desired to be like all the nations around them and have a human king. And so finally, uh, God grant them, granted them their wish and Saul became their uh, first king. If you're not familiar with Jonathan, he is uh, Saul's son. He was Saul's son. Uh, so Jonathan was the heir to Saul's throne. Whenever King Saul would pass, uh, Jonathan would become king. He would ascend uh, to the throne. But by the time we get to this part of the book of 1 Samuel, we find uh, that God had rejected Saul as being the king of Israel. You see, Saul did not rule in a way that pleased God, and so God had rejected him. And by this point in the story, God had sent his prophet Samuel uh, to a man named Jesse and had anointed the youngest son of Jesse, David, to be the next king of Israel. This is a very important thing uh, to keep in mind in this story. And I weighed you in keeping it in mind by mentioning it multiple times throughout the message. Uh, but here is important information for our story. Saul is king. Jonathan is heir to the throne, but God has determined that David will be the next king of Israel. Jonathan was a commendable man in many ways. Uh, if you read some of the earlier chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, we find him leading battles against the enemies of Israel and prevailing in those battles. Uh, and not only did he prevail in battle, but what we find is that he sought the Lord's guidance uh, before he went into battle. He sought the counsel and direction of God, uh, which is something that his father was often guilty of failing to do. Jonathan was a good man. He was a commendable man. But God 
had chosen David to be Israel's next king. Now, that hardly sets up for a good friendship to develop between Jonathan and David. If anything, knowing this, we we already would assume that they're going to be rivals, that they're going to be at odds odds with each other, but that is not what happens at all. Instead, a very close friendship develops between these two uh, men. And we read of their friendship in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. I think this will be on the screen behind me. And uh, here's what it says. This is immediately after David had defeated Goliath. So we read, after David had finished talking with Saul, again, after the defeat of Goliath, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as, his, as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And so what we read of here is the beginnings of a close friendship that develops between David, the young shepherd boy who has become a celebrated warrior because of his defeat of Goliath, and Jonathan, the heir to Saul's throne. After his uh, victory over Goliath, what David did is he began serving within Saul's army. And the Bible tells us that whatever mission Saul sent him on, that David was so successful that Saul gave him more and more responsibility within the army, and he ascended to a very high rank in the army. And we're told that all of the troops and all of the officers of Saul's army were very pleased as David ascended through the ranks and eventually attained a high rank. So this all seems good, doesn't it? David has defeated Goliath on behalf of Saul and Israel. David is now serving Saul as a, as a leader in his army. He is, he is vanquishing Israel's foes. He is meeting with great success. Uh, you'd think this would be happy days. And yet, the happy times were not to last for this reason. Saul became jealous of David. We're told that after killing Goliath and leading these successful military campaigns against Israel's enemies, that when David and his men would return from a military campaign, all the women of the city would run out into the streets and they would dance in celebration and they would sing songs like Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul's done good. David's done great. And we read in verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. And we're told that from that point on, Saul kept a close eye, a jealous eye on David. And then if you go throughout chapter 18, which I hope you'll do this week, you find between verses 9 and 11 that on two separate occasions, Saul tried to kill David both times by throwing a spear at him. Now, here's one of the ways, in addition to leading military campaigns, that that David served Saul. He was a multi-talented individual. Uh, He would, uh, when, when Saul would become troubled in his spirit, David would come into his court and he would play a harp for him. And Saul's spirit would quiet. This is one of the ways David served him. So on one of these occasions, two of these occasions where where Saul is troubled, David comes in, he begins to play the harp, only it doesn't quiet him, it causes him to throw a spear at David. 
and David escapes. But Saul remains jealous. He moves from being jealous of David to being afraid of David. And as David continued to lead successful military campaigns, Saul's jealousy just grew larger and larger and larger. We read in chapter 18 that after Saul twice failed to kill David by the spear, he hatched a clandestine plan to try to get him killed by the Philistines. So here's the plan he came up with. It's a very devious plan. He offered David to marry his youngest daughter, Michael, to become son-in-law to the king. But he informed David that in order to give his approval to the marriage, David had to kill 100 Philistine soldiers and bring back evidence to prove that he had done so. And I'll leave it to your own research to discover the evidence that he needed to bring back. Hopefully I piqued your interest enough to read the, read the chapter this week. So what he was hoping is that he would entice David in this way and that as David went out to try to, uh, to, to kill these hundred uh, Philistines, that David would be killed. Instead, David killed 200 Philistines. Brought back the proof that you can research yourself this week. And Saul gave his daughter to, to marry David, but he had a horrible realization set in. And that realization was that God was with David. And so he became even more afraid of him. And so we're told in verse 28 that Saul, quote, remained David's enemy the rest of his days. And so then as you move from chapter 18 to chapter 19, what happens is Saul dispenses with his clandestine efforts to kill David, and he just gets really overt with it. Uh, We're we're told at the start of chapter 19, quote, Saul told his son Jonathan and all his attendants to kill David. And then what chapters 19 and 20 are almost entirely about is Saul's efforts to kill David. It's an ugly story, uh, but within the ugliness of Saul's attempts to kill David, there is this beautiful story that emerges of the relationship between David and Jonathan. Chapter 19, verses 2 and 3 say this, But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out. I'll stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and I will tell you what I find out. So Jonathan does exactly that. Saul pledges to his son Jonathan that he will not kill David, that he will allow David to remain in safety. But his jealousy is too intense and he doesn't keep his promise. If you keep reading through the story, you find that once again, he tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him. Once again, David escapes. And after he escapes, Saul then puts together a hit squad to go after him. But his wife, Michael, finds out about the plan, warns him about it, and once again, his life is preserved. Then you get to chapter 20. And David and Jonathan get back together and David's saying, dude, you told me that I was going to be safe and your dad's still trying to kill me. He's violated his pledge to to keep me safe. 
And while Jonathan was originally, uh, initially reluctant to believe the report because he wanted to believe his father was telling him the truth, eventually he believes David's story. And chapter 20 then is this great story of all of the effort that Jonathan went to to find out Saul's intentions toward David. And it's a great story of Jonathan's efforts then to work for the safety of David. Now, I'm not going to take time to read all of chapter 20 or even go over all the details. I encourage you to read it this week. Uh, But an overview of it is that Jonathan comes up with a clandestine way to communicate with David about whether or not uh, he is safe or whether Saul is bent on killing him. And essentially, he comes up with this thing where David's going to be waiting in a field. Jonathan's going to get the information from Saul, whether David is safe or not. Then he's going to go out in the field. He's going to shoot an arrow out of his bow. And depending on how far he shoots the arrow and what words he says to his attendants about retrieving the arrow, this will be a sign to David as to whether he is safe or whether he is in danger. And what the end result of chapter 20 is, is that Jonathan discovers that David is not safe. He warns David in this way that they agreed to. David is able to flee from Saul and Jonathan effectively saves David's life. Chapters 19 and 20 are all about Jonathan defending and helping David. Let me remind you again. Jonathan is the heir to Saul's throne. Saul is his father, and yet Jonathan works against his father and works for David to preserve David's life. No doubt, just as Saul did, Jonathan recognized David's growing fame. He recognized that people seemed to love David, that that people were eager to follow David, that people celebrated David. But Jonathan, at every opportunity, helps David, defends David, ultimately saves David's life. And he did all of this because he chose to prefer David over himself. He chose to be willing to help this man who his father saw as a threat to the throne. He did all of this choosing to help this man who God had chosen to be the next king of Israel even though Jonathan was Saul's heir. Not only did he save David, but by preserving David's life, Jonathan also saved the nation of Israel because he preserved the life of God's chosen king. And if you look even deeper than that, while Jonathan could not have understood the far-reaching impact of his self-sacrificing actions, by saving David, Jonathan was ensuring the genealogical line from which Israel's ultimate king and savior would come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is known throughout the New Testament as the son of David. This is a sometimes overlooked story in the Old Testament. It's not nearly as famous as David and Goliath. It's not nearly as famous as David and Bathsheba. And yet through Jonathan's actions, Israel is preserved, David's line is preserved, and from David comes Jesus Christ, the savior of not only Israel, but all of mankind, every single one of us here today. I titled today's message, Jonathan living for the good of the kingdom, because that's what Jonathan did. He lived for the good of Israel 
even at great personal cost. And ultimately, he lived for the good of the kingdom of God at great personal cost by preferring David over himself. That's the story. I think it's a great story. You read it this week, uh, get, get the details. It becomes an even greater story. And there are some great lessons that we can learn from this story. And, and today I've borrowed uh, rather heavily from uh, someone, so I want to give them credit. I want to give credit for these lessons I'm going to share with you to John Maxwell. Uh, I've borrowed them from his excellent book, Running with the Giants, What Old Testament Heroes Want You to Know About Life and Leadership. And in that book, uh, Maxwell asked this question about this story. What empowered Jonathan to put David ahead of himself and serve him? What, what, what caused Jonathan, the prince of Israel and the rightful heir to the throne, to serve the person who was going to ascend to the throne instead of him? And the answer that Maxwell gives to that question is that Jonathan was a person who saw the big picture. He, he was able to prefer David because he saw the big picture of what was best for the kingdom of Israel. You see, Jonathan understood David's potential. David's potential had been overlooked by a lot of people. It had been overlooked by his own father. It had been overlooked by his brothers. But Jonathan saw the big picture and he saw David's potential as a leader would best serve the interest of Israel. Because Jonathan saw the big picture, because he had the best interest of the kingdom at heart, his big picture thinking allowed him to see himself from the right perspective. Here's what Maxwell writes about this. The first great advantage of seeing the big picture is being able to judge yourself realistically. If you overestimate your value, you may do things just to feed your ego. If you underestimate your value, you may become discouraged and neglect to do things you can do. But the big picture gives you a right picture of yourself. When Jonathan saw David after he killed Goliath, the prince realized that David had the potential to be a better leader than his father or himself. And Jonathan realized that he was no longer the best person to ascend the throne. So Jonathan's big picture perspective allowed to see himself from the right perspective. And it also allowed him to see others from the right perspective. Maxwell again. When Jonathan saw himself realistically, he was free to treat others as they deserved. That meant preserving David's life and serving him. Jonathan knew that helping David would benefit the kingdom more than promoting himself as Israel's future ruler. And while King Saul, his father, continually tried to manipulate situations to eliminate David as a threat to him, Jonathan worked hard to help his friend. He strategically invested his time and energy in David's success. So the big picture allowed Jonathan to view himself from the right perspective. It allowed him to view others from the right perspective. And then ultimately it allowed him to do what was right from God's perspective. Maxwell, often our personal ambition clouds God's direction for our lives. 
But Jonathan's grasp of the big picture helped him to understand what God desired. Even though it didn't benefit him personally, Jonathan obeyed God and didn't whine about his rights. Jonathan gave up his own future on the throne to serve the rightful person who would take it. The result, the reign of David was the greatest in Israel's history. Because he was so deeply committed to David's future, Jonathan ended up saving the entire nation of Israel from destruction. These are good. These are important lessons. In every area of our lives, in our careers, in our homes, at school, in our civic organizations, within the church, may we all be people who, who see the big picture and, and serve the good of the whole. Amen. Serve the purpose of the organization instead of only looking out for our own interest. May we be people who see the big picture serve the good of all. May we be people who see ourselves from the right perspective, assess our role correctly. May we be people who see others from the right perspective, be willing to yield to others in areas where they might be able to do something we're not able to do. May we be people who in every area of life seek to do what is right from God's perspective because we hold God's purposes as the highest priority and serve his kingdom rather than serving our own kingdom. These are good and important lessons. Now I want us to work for just a few minutes at applying them to our own lives. Here's the first thing I want us to consider. Only when we see and embrace what is truly important will we be willing to do the seemingly unimportant. Only when we see and embrace what is truly important will we be willing to do the seemingly unimportant with the emphasis on seemingly because there are really no unimportant roles if you look at things correctly. Have you noticed that so much of what we're called to do in life seems kind of mundane and not all that important? Have, have you noticed that? Yep. Yep, some of you haven't noticed that. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's look at a simple task that has to be done every, everywhere there's a building. Someone has to sweep the floors. <clears throat> has to be done. Now, if you're the one tasked with sweeping the floors at your place of business, you may feel at times like what you're doing is not that important. But if you think that, you have a completely wrong perspective. Let me just tell you, as a customer of businesses, if I go into a place of business and the floors are not swept... Uh, my opinion of that place immediately goes into the dumpster. And I don't think it's just me. I, I'm not, you know, uniquely uh, uptight. If you see dirty floors in a place of business, you don't like it. Don't appreciate the laughing. And uh, you don't like it. It's not good. 
You see, seeing the big picture allows you to embrace those seemingly unimportant roles for the good of the organization. You realize that something as simple as sweeping the floors serves the organizational goals. Because as a customer, I I may not stay around long if I see little details like this that are, are troubling to me. I took one of my sons to get some blood work at a lab recently. Well, it wasn't real recently. It was back in the winter. And when we walked into the foyer of the lab, it was covered with dead leaves from the fall. What? It's the middle of winter. Why hasn't someone come out here and cleaned up these leaves? It was all I could do to let the boy get his blood drawn at the place because I thought if they're not cleaning up the leaves, what else are they not doing? On second thought, why'd I let him? I should have left. But these small things, they're important. They matter. They matter. Those of you who arrive early to serve in various capacities on Sunday mornings, you've probably arrived at times to the side of Ben Yee or John Notestein out sweeping the sidewalks. Other people do this as well. Joe Suver sweeps the sidewalks. Other people do this. Um, but, but why do they do that? Why do they do that? You know, Ben has all kinds of responsibilities around here. Sweeping the sidewalk, you could argue, well, why has Ben taken his time to do that? It's because he understands that things like that serve a larger purpose. And so they are important things. You know, why does John Notstein, a man who flies all over the world for business and manages hundreds of people, do all kinds of just mundane tasks around this church that nobody ever knows about? It's because he understands that seemingly unimportant things actually serve very important purposes. He, he understands that picking up a piece of paper off the floor or sweeping a sidewalk or, or helping a ministry leader with something that someone will never know about, that these are all ways of communicating that we care enough to people that we're not going to be haphazard, I care enough about people that we're not going to be haphazard in the way that we do things. He understands something as simple as these kinds of things ultimately serve God's kingdom. I'll make someone like Jarrell Godsey, who's the head of an organization that has international influence, or Andrew Lang, a man who conducts business in countries all over the world. What makes them teach year after year after year in our flight school ministry or teach our middle schoolers? It's because they understand the importance of God's kingdom And they understand that things that are not in the limelight, things that seem small like a single flight school class or a single middle school class in a church in a fairly nondescript Midwestern down, they understand, my apologies to our beloved hometown, they understand that seemingly unimportant things like these are actually very important in the economy of God's kingdom. In the case of David and Jonathan, he not, even, he, he not only served in sort of an out-of-the-way, hidden way that we still often don't give him credit for today, but Jonathan actually moved from a prominent role, heir to the throne, to a behind-the-scenes role. The guy who helped David ascend to the throne that would have been his. So not only did he 
uh, embraced what would be viewed as a less important role, but he gave up the privileged place to do it. But here's the reality, friends. Jonathan's role was not less important than David's. It was just different. He receded into the background and David ascended into the spotlight, but David does not get there without Jonathan. Jonathan, in a sense, was the kingmaker. He made David king. Only when you see what is truly important will you be willing to do the seemingly unimportant. What seemingly unimportant thing has God been dealing with you about that you need to say yes to today, that you need to embrace today? What's happening at your job? You know, what, what kind of like thankless role does somebody need to step up and take and nobody's been willing to do it and God's been nudging you and you've been saying, nah, I'm not, I'm not putting myself into that mess. Maybe God's asking you to do that today. What at home is God asking you to do? What task have you and your spouse been fighting over? Nobody wants to do it. It's a thankless role. Maybe God's saying to you, step up, do that thing. I want you to take that on because somebody needs to do it. Somebody needs to take the trash out or this place is going to get nasty in here. (laughs) At church, has God been dealing with you to start serving but you haven't wanted the inconvenience that comes with serving for what you see as a seemingly unimportant role. There are no unimportant roles. At your job, in your home, in the church, all roles serve the larger purpose. And so my hope is that all of us would be people who see the big picture and embrace the seemingly unimportant role for the good of your company, for the good of your home, for the good of your civic organization, for the good of your church, and ultimately, for the good of God's kingdom. Here's another personal application from this story. Every time we encounter someone with potential, we have a choice to make. We can either hurt them or help them. What kind of person do you want to be? You see, Jonathan didn't serve David because Jonathan didn't have good potential. He was actually a very capable man. He was a very commendable man. Jonathan had a lot of potential. He helped David because he realized that David had greater potential. By contrast, Saul noted David's potential and set out to destroy him. Maxwell notes all of the things that would have been different if Saul had embraced David's potential. Here here are some of them. His time would have been spent on productive things instead of unproductive things. Saul and Jonathan's relationship would have been better. The kingdom of Israel would have been united instead of divided. God's blessing would have remained on Saul's leadership and a legacy of leadership would have passed from Saul to David. In the end, Saul's jealousy did not hurt David. 
it hurt Saul. And that's always true. So what do we do when we encounter someone and we recognize that that person has greater potential than we do? Doesn't mean we don't have any. It just means we recognize they have greater potential. What do we do? The way that we respond to that situation tells us a lot about whether or not we are people with a big picture perspective. When we have the big picture perspective, we'll help the coworker, even though we realize they might go further up the corporate ladder than we will. We'll help the person in our civic organization who we realize they have the potential to be president of this thing someday, and I kind of wanted to be president. We'll help the person that we realize might have the potential to someday move into a leadership role in the church and do a more effective job at what we're currently doing. Why? Because our heart is for the good of the whole. Our heart is for the good of the company. Our heart is for the good of the church. And ultimately, our heart is for the good of the kingdom of God. The final thing I want to share with you today is that as Jonathan served David, as Jonathan accepted a support role instead of the lead role, Jonathan shared in David's success. David's success was Jonathan's success. As the nation of Israel benefited from David's military exploits, Jonathan was part of that. He was responsible for that. Here's why. David could not have done what David did if Jonathan had not done what Jonathan did. As the nation of Israel benefited from David's rule, the greatest rule in Israel's history... Jonathan shared in that success. That success was to his credit because David could not have done that without Jonathan. As the entire world has been blessed by the preservation of David's genealogical line, which brought the world Jesus, the Savior of all mankind, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jonathan played the role that God assigned to him. He saw the big picture. He lived for the good of the kingdom of Israel instead of his own interest. And though he couldn't possibly have understood all that his actions were going to help to bring about, he lived for the good of the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of which Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. Isn't that better than a few short years as king? Isn't that better than a few short years as king? All right. That is better than living in resentment and jealousy because someone else gets a role that's a little bit more in the limelight than my role. That's better than striving for our own interest like Saul did and ending up a cautionary tale. This is what always happens. You strive for your own interests instead of living for the good of others and the kingdom of God, you end up a cautionary tale. It's much better to live sacrificially. It's much better to live for the kingdom and end up an example of faithfulness, an example of kingdom-mindedness 
and end up someone who contributed to the advancement of the eternal kingdom of God. This is our calling. God, what's my role? I want to fill it. If my role is like in the limelight, if my role is one where you're going to give me a lot of success, I want to fulfill it. But if my role is in a hidden place, and if my role is a hard role, if it's the one you have for me, I want it. This is what everyone who's ever followed God has had to say. God, whatever you have for me to do, I'll do. John the Baptist, famous, big crowds following him. Jesus comes on the scene. Suddenly he's relegated to the sidelines. He has to say okay to that. Peter, he got informed by Jesus that what it was going to mean to faithfully uh, serve in God's kingdom was he was going to be killed. Jonathan was going to, or John was, John, I'm sorry, John was going to die an old man on an island. Peter was going to get killed. Tradition tells us he was hung upside down on a cross. Why did I get that assignment, Jesus? He said, okay, I'll do that. I got the names right there. I said Peter, right? Okay. This is our, this is our calling. God, what role do you have for me? Whether it's the plum assignment or the difficult assignment, I'm down for it because I want to serve your kingdom. And so may we in every area of our lives commit to living for the larger good. Within our church, let's live for the good of the whole. Realizing that God uses our actions in, in all of these ways, in all of these fears of our life, God uses our actions to advance his eternal kingdom. Let's lay aside pettiness and jealousy. Let's be people who live for the good of God's kingdom. Amen.